Well, hey, good morning, Harvest family, and any maybe friends or new people joining us online today. We're so glad that you found us and that you're going to get to worship with us this morning. And we want to continue to worship the Lord right now through the study of his word. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Acts chapter 18 today. Acts chapter 18. And as we continue on in the book of Acts, we just continue to learn more and more about what it means to follow Christ and what it means to put Jesus before everything else. We're going to see that again today. And Jesus is bigger than my identity. And uh, we all have an identity, a role that we play, and uh, how that intersects with and comes underneath the Lordship of Christ is a super important thing for us to understand and study and, uh, and really grab a hold of. So we're going to look at that today um, through this passage. You know, one major shift that I think many people have been having to deal with over the last couple of months uh, is this whole new work from home situation, right? Everybody's having to, to work from home right now, and which means that a lot of our spouses have now been seeing their spouse or their partner work from home for maybe the first time. And they're seeing them in work mode, um, which is kind of different for some of them. And some of them have taken to Twitter and told us how they felt about seeing their work spouse uh, or their spouse working from home. And it's kind of hilarious. So I just want to share some of these tweets with you today. See, maybe you can identify with some of these. Uh, Laura tweeted this. She said, a funny thing about quarantining is hearing your partner in full work mode for the first time. Like, I'm married to a, let's circle back to that guy. Who knew? (laughs) Leslie uh, wrote this. She said, the first time I saw a work husband, I was thrilled to find out that he was a, I don't think Laura was done speaking yet, guy. And uh, another one said, Clancy, he uh, said about his wife, hearing my wife in meetings, especially with subordinates, and it dawns on me that she uses personnel management techniques on me all the time. Um, that's an interesting revelation from your work, uh, senior spouse working at home. Uh, Dan confessed, he said, I got to hear my wife discuss fun, uh, fundraising strategies for battling brain diseases. And it was super clear just how up I married. So that's maybe a little bit more of an encouraging one. Uh, Rachie wrote this, she said, my partner is laid back and chilled about everything, never has much of an opinion or argument, but apparently at work, he's super competent, speaks up and gets things done. It's very disorienting. Maybe my favorite one came from Jacqueline. She wrote this. She said, turns out my husband can actually small talk, just not with anyone that we know in non-work life. I'm glad that somebody else has that problem as well. Um, so it's, it's really interesting whenever this happens, right? Because to varying degrees, we all experience this. We all wear different hats at different places at different times. We have different parts of who we are. And we tend to segment and compartmentalize our lives so that maybe we talk one way at the office, we talk a different way at home, or we, you know, we, have, we act one way with our friends at school, we act a different way with our church friends or whatever it might be. And the problem comes when these different parts of our life collide, when they come together, when they start to, to mix into one another. And, and we have this question inside of us of like, how do I resolve these different parts of my identity coming together? And, and which one is going to win? right? And, and for us as Christians, for those of us who are followers of Christ, there's really only one acceptable answer to that question. And that's the point of the passage today. To live for Christ, I must submit every part of my life. To live for Christ, to have my identity in him, I must submit every single part of my life to who he is. And so we're going to see that in the passage today. This uh, chapter 18 is, is really a, a continuation of Paul's travel narrative. And as he's continuing on his second missionary journey, 
And so I want to read kind of the whole chapter. We don't usually do that, but we're going to read the whole chapter just to get the context. I'm going to show you some things on the map so that you can see how Paul's traveling here. Then we're going to circle back, and I want us to not so much focus on Paul, the super apostle, which is hard maybe for us to identify with sometimes, but we're going to focus on just the regular, normal people who were followers of Christ that Paul interacted with and how they submitted their lives to Jesus. So with that in mind, look at chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So Corinth is the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. So let me show you here again on the map. So if we're starting over here in Antioch, that's where the first, or I'm sorry, the second missionary journey started for Paul. Remember, he went through Cilicia and Galatia, strengthening the churches. He wanted to go into Asia. God said no. And so he had to go north here through Mycenae, and he ended up over at Troas, where he gets this vision of a man saying, hey, come over to Macedonia and tell us about the gospel. So he does. He gets on a boat, and he sails over to Macedonia, ends up going to Philippi for a little bit. And then from Philippi, he goes down to Thessalonica, and then to Berea, and eventually down to Athens. That's where we left him last week. Now he's leaving Athens, and he's going across over here to Corinth in Achaia. So Corinth is the big capital city of the area. It's the major area that, or major city that everyone kind of flocks to and goes through. And uh, so we're going to see here how Paul deals with people in Corinth. So let's go to verse 2. It says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of, of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So the first people Paul interacts with are uh, Aquila and Priscilla. So we're going to look at them here in a little bit. But then it goes on in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. So the second person we're going to look at today is Titius Justus and this house that Paul sets up in to do his ministry after he leaves the synagogue. Then in verse 8 comes the third person, Crispus, it says, was the ruler of the synagogue, and he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, having, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so it says, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then we get to verse 12, and look, we have a new person on the scene here. But it says, but when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they, the Jews, all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio paid no attention to any of this. So they didn't get their way with Paul, and so they beat poor Sosthenes instead. But then we pick up with Paul again in 18. It says, 
After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. That's where he started from. And with, Pris- with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At uh, Syncrae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But take, on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So let me show you again on the map here to kind of catch you up. That was a lot of traveling Paul just did. So again, they start in Corinth, and then he goes down to Sincrae, which is basically the coast, and sets sail for Ephesus. All right, and he ends up in Ephesus. He makes a few disciples there. He leaves uh, Aquila and Priscilla behind in Ephesus to disciple those people and to carry on the ministry as he continues on back to Syria, sailing down here and landing in Caesarea. From Caesarea, he goes down to Jerusalem to visit the church, the original church. And then he goes all the way up here to Antioch, where he first started to give them the report of his journey. So that's kind of the totality of Paul's second missionary journey. But then from there, in this passage, he actually starts also on his third missionary journey, where he leaves Antioch, goes back through Cilicia and Galatia, and this time he's going to head over towards Ephesus to meet back up with Aquila and Priscilla later on and continue to minister there. But in in chapter 18, we have one more section here that Paul's not in, but it's in Ephesus. So let's pick that up as well. It says in verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, that's the fourth person we're going to look at today, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So I know that was a lot of scripture to cover, and a lot of that was just Paul traveling around and doing things. But now I want us to go back and look at four specific people or groups of people and how they just normal, average Christians, how they submitted their lives to Christ as they found their identity in him. So here's the first one. Point number one today is this. I submit my work life to serve Christ. The first thing is, as part of my identity, I submit my work life to serve Christ. And for this, let's look at Aquila and Priscilla. So um, we find out when Paul gets to Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and they were Jews who had been expelled from Rome, right? So they were Jews who were part of the diaspora. They'd been living in Rome. They had a business in Rome. And then it says, if we go to the history books, we know that um, the, what the scripture here is saying is correct, that uh, Claudius, the ruler of that time, expelled many of the Jews from Rome because there was a riot going on. There was a fight going on in Rome between Jews and, I guess, Jewish Christians over Christ and whether or not he was really it. And instead of trying to sort it all out, Claudius just said, all of you get out. <laughs> so he kicked them all out of Rome and Italy. And so um, Aquila and Priscilla here, they move to Corinth to start over and to start a new business. And we find out that their business is that they're tent makers. And tent makers in that day would have just kind of been your average small business owner doing their thing, trying to make a living, having a little shop somewhere. So they show up in court and they start this new business. And then Paul shows up. And if we find out that Paul meets him, that he's of the same trade. 
So Paul was also a tent maker. Um, part of him being able to go around and do his missionary journey and not have to take money from different churches was that he would do the tent making thing so he could support himself. So he meets up with other tent makers. And just think about this for a second. If you're in a brand new city, starting a brand new business, you're trying to get off the ground, you're trying to get going, it's really hard, you're trying to make a living, and another tent maker shows up, you don't see him as a partner. <laughs> you're going to see him as competition, right? Like he's going to try to come in and take part of the, a piece of the pie away from you and away from your business. That's usually not a good thing. But right here, Aquila and Priscilla, they invite Paul in to stay with them and to partner with them and to, and to do the business together. This is very interesting. And we find out here that Aquila and Priscilla, they put the gospel mission above their business and above their profits. They still had a business. They still kept doing it. But the gospel came first. And if Paul was preaching the gospel and they could help out with that and they could do it together, they were all for that. And so they just keep going and they invite Paul in to be a part of it. We see further evidence of their mindset when we get to verse 18. Is when Paul decided to leave Corinth and head back, they go with him, right, to go and do more ministry. They just spent two years or more in Corinth building this new business, getting it up and going. They're probably just now kind of getting their footing, and now they're going to leave? Like, if you've ever started a business, you know how much hard work it is. You don't just get up and leave when you're two years in. But for them, this wasn't just a business decision. This was a ministry decision, right? They, they weren't just business partners. They were ministry partners with Paul. And, and so they go with him to do more ministry. And so when Paul gets to Ephesus, he makes a few converts, and he can't stay. And so he hands them over to Aquila and Priscilla. And they stay in Ephesus. They stay behind to continue on the ministry of making disciples there. This is such a key thing in the way that they view uh, business that we need to grab a hold of as Christians today. That work is first and foremost a vehicle to help spread the gospel. Our work, our business, what we do is first and foremost a vehicle to help spread the gospel. It's not just a way to make a living. It's not just a way to, in, to do something that you like or love or, or support your family. God gives us the ability to work so that we can use it for his glory and for the good of spreading the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla, they were making tents so they could make disciples, not the other way around. They submitted their entire work life to serve Christ, and they gave their business to him. I feel like I've been super blessed uh, in my life that I've got to see a real-life example of this firsthand in my own father. Many of you know from my testimony that when I was born, I was born a pastor's kid. He was a full-time vocational pastor, um, and then a couple years in, my parents ended up getting a divorce, and he had to leave pastoral ministry for a prolonged season, because he just really wasn't fit to be pastoring at that time. And so during that time when he was away from ministry, he started his own business. He started a training and consulting company where he travels around to different businesses and government organizations and does training for them and consults and coaches them in different ways. And so he spent many years, many years, developing his business, growing his business, while still serving in the local church as a layperson. And then, several years later, a group approached him about wanting to plant a church in their hometown and asked if he would be their pastor. And he said yes on one condition, that he would not take a salary from the church. He wanted to continue to support himself from his business so that he could serve the church for free. And he did. 
And he started pastoring this church. And not only did that allow him to pastor the church for free, but it also allowed him to continue to grow his business so his excess funds, his excess resources from the business, he could use that to support his local church, to support other ministries, to support other people. And since he's still in business, he spends lots of time rubbing elbows with business people in the workplace and that are usually lost. And this gives him a chance to share his story and share his testimony and, and be a witness to them right there in the workplace. So when I think about my dad and how he runs his business, he is just as much a full-time minister now as he ever was before, or me or any other pastor. Because he is serving the Lord with his business every single day. And he sees it as a vehicle to help serve and expand the kingdom. So he submits every aspect of his work and his business life to the Lord. He's a Christian first and a businessman second. Christians, that should apply to all of us. We should all approach work and business as, listen, I'm a Christian first, and so my position, my business, all of that, it comes second. It is submitted to Christ. I submit my work life to serve Christ. That's what we're called to. And that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. But there's a second thing I want to look at here, a second part of our life that we need to submit to Christ. And we see this Um, it says, I submit my social life to my relationship with Christ. This is point number two. I submit my social life to my relationship with Christ. Titius Justice is the second kind of average Christian person we encounter here in the text. And uh, so what happens is Paul is in Corinth and he's going to the synagogue. He's preaching, he's teaching the, the Jews. He's trying to convert them. He's trying to help them see that they need to believe in Jesus. But it says that they didn't buy it. Right? They opposed him. They reviled him. And so when he could tell that they were not going to receive Christ, he shook off his garment and he left. And in Jewish culture, shaking off your garment basically is like writing somebody off. It's like, fine, if you don't want it, I'm out. You're on your own. Forget it. And he broke fellowship with these Jewish people and he leaves to go teach others. And it says when he left, he ended up going to the house of Titius Justice, who was a worshiper of God. That's an important piece. A worshiper of God meant that he was a Greek or a Gentile who feared God, who worshiped the Jewish God. So he would have been connected to the synagogue. He would have been connected to the Jewish community. These would have been his friends. These would have been his people that he did life with. You know, the same group that Paul just wrote off and broke off connection with and walked away from. Those were his people before he believed in Jesus. And to add insult to injury, his house is right next door to the synagogue. Can we say awkward? <laughs> right? Like he is set like Paul is setting up shop right next to the synagogue that just kicked him out basically. Like the competition is sit, setting up shop right next door. This means war. And so I have no doubt that for Titius this was basically social and relational suicide. Right? Like the fact that he was willing to side with Paul instead of his Jewish community that he'd been living with would have been a major issue. He would have been a social outcast. He would have been rejected. He probably would have been attacked even um, at times. But he did it anyways because he loved Jesus and he valued his relationship with Jesus over any other relationship, over any other social group, over any other circle of people. He loved and wanted a relationship with Jesus more. And so if that meant it was going to cost him some relationships on this other side, he was going to do that. 
Another thing that's interesting to me about Titius is that this is the only time he is mentioned in all of Scripture. We don't see him anywhere else. Just this one time. And I believe Luke includes him because of this simple act of sacrificial obedience. He was willing to sacrifice his his relationships and his connection to these other people to give Paul a place to minister. And his house became a a multi-year hub for Paul's ministry, out of which is birthed a a regional church there in Corinth that's going to help serve the entire region. And it's the church that Paul is going to write letters back to in the future that we now have in our New Testament that serve as scriptures for us today. That all started right here with Titius opening up his house because he put his relationship with Jesus above his social circle, above his relationships with other people. You know, when I think about marriage, marriage is a, is a bedrock institution. It's, it's a stabilizing institution for our society because it draws us to be committed to one person. It's built on commitment. It's about giving yourself to that person and prioritizing that relationship above all other earthly relationships. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment, imagine that you are engaged, right? That you're engaged to the love of your life. You think that they're just the greatest thing since sliced bread. You can't wait to spend the rest of your life with them. And finally, the big day comes. The wedding's here with the flowers and the dresses and the family and the food and the music. And it's, it's going to be great. And you're, you, you go into the ceremony and the ceremony's progressing along and you finally get to the vows, And you're standing there and you're staring into the eyes of your soon-to-be spouse and they're staring back in yours. And they say this to you. I love you with all my heart. I choose you over everyone else. I'm committed to you alone for the rest of my life. But only when we're at home. Right? Like when, when we go out to eat or if I'm at work or school or hang out with my friends, pretty much any time that's not just me and you, then I'm out. Like I, I don't really want to talk about you. I don't want to wear the ring. I don't want anybody to know. I don't want to hold hands. I, I, I want to ignore you because I don't think everybody would necessarily like you or like our relationship. And so I'm just, when we're alone, it's great. But when I'm with anybody else, then we, we can't really do it that way. Who's going to say I do to that? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody signing up for a marriage like that? I don't think so, right? But some of you guys, some of us have the same arrangement with Jesus. You're saying, yeah, Jesus, I love you. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to be with you just as long as no one else has to know about it. Just as long as I don't have to let that impact any of my other relationships because you're scared that you're going to lose some social circles. You're going to lose some relationships with other people if they know that you love Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you should go and write off all your, Christ, uh, all your non-Christian relationships. That's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. If you have somebody who's close to you and you're, you're friends with them or family or whatever, and they don't know Jesus, you don't need to hide Jesus from them. You need to bring Jesus to them, right? This is an opportunity for you to, to, to let them meet the one that you love and care about so much but some of you are holding back. You're holding on to these relationships that you know are no good for you because you want their approval more than you want Jesus' approval. And that doesn't work. It doesn't fly that way. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's that perverted boyfriend that's always pushing you down the wrong road. 
Maybe it's that materialistic girlfriend that's always got um, her eyes set on something else. Maybe it's that, you know, crooked hunting buddy that's always bringing you into poor decisions or that neighborhood gossip that makes you feel like you're in and you're part of the group. But you know that that relationship, that person is not in line with who you are in Christ. And you're still holding on to it. You're not letting it go. But the truth is, you can't be identified with them and Jesus. So you have to make a choice. Who you're going to have your identity in. Which relationship is more important? I submit my social life to my relationship with Christ. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's what you have to do. Submit my social life to my relationship with Christ. He comes first. All other relationships come second. So I need to submit my work life to Christ. I need to submit my social life to Christ. But then there's a third part of our lives that we need to look at. So point number three, I submit my organizational life to be devoted to Christ. My organizational life to be devoted to Christ. Here we have Crispus on the scene now. And we find out that Crispus is the ruler of the synagogue, which means he would have been one of the top guys. He would have had position. He would have had power. He would have had respect. He probably got a lot of his self-worth and importance from being this ruler in the synagogue. And he didn't get there overnight, right? This would have been a long process. So that means this, he would have put in years with the synagogue, years of allegiance and devotion and being committed to this organization. He had every worldly reason to just hold on tight to that position and to that organization and not let it go. Except, Luke tells us, he believed in the Lord. He came to believe in Jesus. And then when he did, his old organization, the synagogue, stood in direct opposition to Jesus and his teachings. He knew that he couldn't have both. They were too opposite of one another. They didn't mesh together. And so he had to decide to sacrifice his old life, sacrifice his connection to this organization in order to have his new life in Christ. And it's kind of a good thing that he did. Because later on, Paul gets himself in trouble again with some of the Jews, and they try to put him on trial, and, and he gets out of it. But then when they get mad that he didn't get convicted and, uh, and punished, they punish Sosthenes, who is the new ruler of the synagogue, who I guess took Crispus' place when he left, and they beat him. That could have been Crispus if he'd have stayed, if he'd have tried to somehow work it together. But maybe this was God protecting him, and he got out. What, what I really respect about Christmas is that he didn't try to just add Jesus to his already established thing. He didn't try to just tack Jesus on to his organizational life as it already stood. He saw clearly these two things aren't going to work together. They're not aligned. They don't have the same beliefs. They don't have the same direction. They're, they're not on the same page. So I can't have my cake and eat it too. i got to make a choice. And he chose Jesus. And so he submitted his organizational life to his devotion to Jesus, which in this case meant walking away. It doesn't always mean that, but sometimes it does. Let me see if I can give you a couple examples of this um, from my own life or just from real life in general. So when, I, when Courtney and I first graduated from college, we were both public school teachers. And um, so in Missouri, there were kind of two major teacher unions that you could be a part of, and there was really only one that was really present and active at my school district. Um, and so there was a lot of pressure 
from our fellow teachers and coworkers, hey, man, you need to join the union. You know, you need to be a part of this because they help us with contract negotiations and they help us, you know, have more power and control in the school. They, they give us insurance and, and legal protection in case we're sued. Um, and so, no, this is something that you need as a teacher. You need to be a part of this with us. But the problem was that this union, they did a lot of great things for teachers, but they also got involved a lot in state and national politics. And oftentimes they were heavily lobbying for issues and policies that I felt like were contrary to God's word. And so I had a decision to make. Like, am Am I going to bow to the pressure to be a part of this organization and to be a part of this with my fellow coworkers and to reap the personal benefits of that? Or... Am I going to stand up for God's truth and walk away? And ultimately, that's what I had to do. I, I, I couldn't in good conscience say yes to an organization that I didn't agree with the policies that they were functioning on. So in the, in the end, I refused to join that organization, that union, and instead I went and found a different professional organization that would offer us the same insurance and protection and, and help without all the moral compromise attached to it. That's a kind of a, a work example. Let me give you a family example. I think a, a great example of this is the, the level that our kids' sports organizations and activities and different things they're involved in, the demands that they put on families. Many kids' sports organizations today, they demand an exorbitant amount of our time and our energy and our money. They want to dictate our schedules and our priorities and it's weird because it just wasn't like that when we were kids, right? Like you went and played a couple days or you had a, couple, you had a practice once a week or something and then it was for a short season and you took a break. But it's just, it's so demanding now and it's hard because we oftentimes we want our kids to be able to experience that, right? We had so much fun playing sports. We want them to have fun. We want them to have that experience of doing that. But how do I give them that experience and still balance that with keeping my family committed to the Lord and not letting it take priority over our faith? So I just really appreciate one of the way the, the way that one of our elders and his family handle this with their kids. They say, okay, the kids are allowed to play, that's fine. But they make it very clear up front to the coach, to the team, to the kids, to the family, that this will not take precedent over church. So if there's a game on Sunday morning, you're not going to play in it. If there's a practice or something going on Wednesday nights, you're not going to do it. If there's other things that are going to somehow take precedent and priority over the Lord, then you can't do that part. And they just draw that line so that they're making sure that their organizational life is not taking over and usurping their spiritual life with the Lord. You can see this play out in all kinds of areas, right? Professional organizations, like I talked about, like unions or whatever, kids' sports and activities, with social clubs and causes that you maybe are a part of and stand for. Maybe it's a, a, a work or trade affiliation that you're grouped into. Or maybe it's just the, a, a consuming time commitment, right? Maybe you just committed your time to something, and it's taking so much of your time that you can't give enough time to the Lord. And none of these things are inherently bad. Please hear me. I'm not saying any of these things are bad things. They're not. But when they require me to be more devoted to them than I am to Christ, that's a problem. That's when it's a no-go. When it starts to take away my ability to be devoted to Jesus. Because if I belong to Christ, I belong to him much more than I do any other group or organization. My identity in him comes first. So I, I submit my organizational life to be devoted to Christ.
That's the third area. And there's one more area I want you to look at, and that is the heart life. Point number four, I submit my heart life to exalt Christ. And our example here is Apollos. This is the guy that shows up in Ephesus after Paul leaves. And we find out that Apollos is a native of Alexandria, which was a city in North Africa that was, uh, it was a Roman city. And it was kind of the, the, the central intellectual center of that area. They had a world-renowned library, lots of education, lots of uh, people coming out of there with you know, very educated abilities. And Apollos seems to be one of them. He comes with this great ability to be an eloquent speaker. He was a, a great teacher, and he spoke well, and he spoke boldly. And on top of his abilities, he had a great knowledge, too. He's very competent in the scriptures. He, he knew the Old Testament well because of his Judaism. He, but it says here he also accurately taught Jesus. So he has been exposed, at least on some level, to who Jesus is and he believes. And he's teaching some of that. But then it has this weird note. It says, but he knew only the baptism of John. So it sounds like he didn't have the full picture. He had accurate knowledge of Jesus, but he also had incomplete knowledge of Jesus. He needed to have the whole story so he could really believe and teach correctly. And so Priscilla and Aquila see him teaching, and they notice that he doesn't have the full story, and so it says they took him aside, which is a great wisdom piece right there, right? They didn't chastise him in public. They didn't try to condemn him in front of everybody else. They took him aside privately to encourage him, to mentor him, and say, hey, let, let us help you here. Let us teach you. And it says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They started filling in the gaps, right? They started giving him the full thing. Now, think about this. If you're Apollos, you don't know these people. You've never, like, you just met them for the first time. And it would have been very easy for him to get puffed up and say, you know, I, I came from Alexandria. Do you know who I am? Like, I have all this learning. I've, I've, been, I've done all this schooling. Like, I have all these abilities. Like, who are you to tell me anything? But Apollos doesn't do that. He listens and he learns and he humbly receives the teaching that Priscilla and Aquila are going to give him. And this is an important lesson for us as we're following Christ in any part of our life. That when it comes to following Christ, humility is of greater value than ability. God may have gifted you with some great abilities, and praise the Lord if he did. But if you don't have humility to go along with it, it's not going to take you very far. Not with Jesus. Right? When it comes to following Christ, humility is of greater value than ability. And we see that here with Apollos. And so Apollos is there in Ephesus for a while, and then he says that he wished to cross over the sea and go to Achaia, like Corinth and Athens, and teach over there. And the brothers encouraged him and wrote a letter saying, hey, welcome this guy, right? So obviously his heart's in the right place. His earnestness is there because they're saying, yes, this guy is for Jesus. Let's send him over with our full commitment. So he ends up in Achaia, and it says that he powerfully refuted the Jews by the scriptures. So he starts preaching and God starts using him in powerful ways. And I love the last line. It says, and he preached that the Christ was Jesus. That's Apollos' heart. That's the key right there to the heart life of a Christian. It's not about Apollos. It's not about his abilities. It's not about his preaching. His heart says it's all about Jesus. That should be true for all of us. That is the heart cry of every person whose identity is first and foremost in Christ. It's all about Jesus. I hope you have that. That's what it means when I say, I submit my heart life to exalt Christ. I'm submitting my heart, not about me, but all about exalting the name of Jesus. 
So those are the four areas. So I just want to ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing at submitting every part of your life to Christ? What about your work life? Is your financial gain and your business resources and your, your purpose for working, is all of that in service to the King Jesus? Or is that in service to King Self and what you can get out of it? What about your, um, your social life? Are your friendships and social circles and personal life, are they about being liked and being accepted and being in? Or are they more concerned with bringing people into your relationship with Jesus? What about your organizational life? Who has your greatest devotion? Is it your union? Is it your community organization? Is it your team that you play on? Like, who has your greatest devotion? Or is it Jesus and his church? That's where the devotion needs to lie first. And then lastly, the heart life. All of this can't just be about submitting to Jesus on the outside. We have to submit to Jesus on the inside. Are you humble enough to submit your entire heart to Jesus? If you do that, every other part of your life will follow. Once we get the heart submitted, all the other pieces fall in line. So ask yourself, does my heart shout, it's all about Jesus? Is that the cry of your heart today? When that is the cry of your heart, then you know that your identity is first and foremost in Christ. To live for Christ, I must submit every part of my life. I hope you have that heart. I hope you have that desire today. Let's pray and ask God to grow that in us together. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for this wonderful morning to gather in worship to worship you, to exalt your name. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to yourself, making us your people. You are the king, you are the Lord, you are the master of our lives and our hearts and everything. And so we worship you today because you are worthy. There's no one like you, there's no one above you, including us. So Lord, help us submit. Man, that's a hard word sometimes. But Lord, we need this. Lord, help us submit every part of our lives to you. Every moment of every day. We want to be filled up with all that you are so that everything else just fades into the background. Jesus, you are bigger. Help us, Lord, to find our identity in you. Lord, if we have you, we don't need anything else. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us. We pray all of this in Christ's perfect, wonderful name. Amen.